0: Mormon Stories podcast is a production of the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to Mormon Stories are fully tax deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at mormonstories.org. Okay, so um so that that's a that's a version of the atonement that I I can intellectually kind of at least feel better about, or at least not feel um, any aversive thoughts or feelings about. How about, how about all these recent attempts to kind of uh, analyze the Bible uh, and, and especially the New Testament? And specifically, I'm talking about, like, let's just say Bart Ehrman's work, you know, where, where you realize that it wasn't Matthew James and, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that actually wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that in many cases, those stories were handed down through oral tradition, that we don't even know who wrote which of the books and in what order. The fact that they, if you really do take each of those books at face value, they tell in some cases dramatically different stories. And so it's just confusing and contradictory. And, you know, Some people just say that the Bible just, especially the New Testament, just falls apart once you understand its historical origins. Have have you read that stuff? And and if so, in what way do you piece it back together?
1: Yeah, I've read Bart Ehrman and I've read some of his, uh, I guess, detractors and um, his um, opponents in some of these debates. Let me just start with a little bit of history to try to frame, I think, how we got to where we are in Mormonism, and our attitudes toward the Scriptures, towards the Bible. The first real book of theology written in in the Church is Parley Pratt's Voice of Warning, back in 1837. Now, Parley Pratt comes out of the Restorationist tradition, and, you know... What does that
0: mean? What does that mean?
1: Well, there were a bunch of groups, especially the Campbellites, who were all um, trying to steer Christianity back to its more primitive New Testament forms and doing this largely by stripping away everything that had been added by the Roman and Protestant traditions, as well as by um, re- returning to the gifts of the Spirit and the other kind of New Testament phenomena that we saw in the early church.
0: Okay, so there's this argument that, that, that um, Von Brody and Grant Palmer make that, that Joseph Smith was just like this cultural sponge. And what I'm hearing you say is that even the notion of a restoration was part of the milieu that Joseph was swimming in. Is that right?
1: Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, okay. Joseph Smith. I mean, if I were to define how he understood his own calling, uh, the term I would use is inspired eclecticist. Yeah, he was he a was right, sponge, right. absolutely. But, you know, we... we <laughs> And that's a problem for a lot of Latter-day Saints who have read a very different version of history in which Mormonism erupted in an absolute vacuum. But it's not to denigrate the role or calling of a prophet or the scope of Joseph Smith's contribution to say that most of his ideas, or many of them, probably most, already existed in the environment or among predecessors. Mm -hmm. Because his job, he felt, was to filter them. to I mean, St. Augustine said the same thing. St. Augustine used the example of what he called spoiling the Egyptians, right, when the children of Israel take all of the gold from their Egyptian captors and then use it to to found their own, right, new Israelite civilization. Um, Similarly, Augustine said, we've got to steal the truths from the pagans and return them to the right context. Mm. I, I think the best example of how Joseph did that blatantly, right, out in the open, was to take the Masonic ritual and say, okay, They've got all of these signs and tokens and, 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 you know, drama, but they don't understand what its real eternal significance is. Now we put it, put it in the temple. That's where it
2: belongs. Mm-hmm.
1: And Mormons get scandalized. Oh, he's stealing from the Masons. Well, of course he was stealing from the Masons, because he said they didn't they didn't know what to do with it, and he did. Hmm. So that's the first point that has to be made. So yeah, restoration is, is everywhere in the air in the 1820s and 30s. Okay, well, I, I didn't mean to take us away
0: from Christ, I just...
1: Okay, so the main problem that Parley-Pratt has with many of the Restorationists is that they are what he calls spiritualizers. This is especially in reference to how you interpret discussion about the millennium. And many religions then, before and since, have said, well, the millennium is a spiritual thing, right? Christ is going to spiritually come again. And Parley-Pratt thought that was one of the greatest evils confronting Christendom. So, in the voice of warning, he lays down the law that Mormons are literalists. We take the scriptures literally. And, you know, Joseph never really said much about that. Joseph seemed to go in an opposite direction when he indicated that, you know, we work with a broken and fragmented language and God speaks according to, you know, the understanding of, of, of who he's working with and he himself continually worked at revising his revelations to try to come closer to the essence of what he felt the Spirit was trying to convey. I think another misdirection is by misreading the article of faith that refers to the Bible being the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but it's pretty clear that Joseph has a very loose understanding of what translation means, right? Mm-hmm. When he reads when he read quote retranslates the bible he's not working with original manuscripts he's retransmitting it so i think it works a lot better if we understand the mormon position to be we believe the bible to be the word of god in so far as it is transmitted correctly well that that opens up a lot more leeway and you know where does this idea come from anyhow that that the bible is narrated by god to prophets who dictate word for word what he says that's, that's, a, you know, that's a fundamentalist conception that really should have no place in Mormonism. So I, I think we should all just be a lot more open and flexible in how we understand that process of scriptural transmission through the ages, which is one reason why I think we have the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price, because these are more recent correctives to a scriptural canon that obviously was either incomplete, or sufficiently full of error to not be a reliable guide to the faith. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that Bart Ehrman, and I'm not going to you know lock horns with him, he's obviously much more versed and competent in, in the field than I am, but I think he, he greatly overstates the case. I I, I don't believe myself that there's any real reason to doubt that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just because their names don't appear on the earliest versions of the manuscripts. Um, and, and I think the case is pretty strong that most of what we now have as the New Testament was written by those people it purports to be written by, although in the case of Paul, many of those are, are ambiguous. And I believe that the Old Testament has a lot less to say to us than the New Testament or other scriptures.
0: Right. Okay, so if I had to restate, you're basically saying that the scripture and this is this is the only way that it could possibly make sense for me just the whole you know christianity and mormonism is that prophets are maybe one shade less bumbling idiots than the rest of us and what we get as scripture is just um you know uh <laughs> their best guess with with a little bit of inspiration and guidance but could be just as fallible as what, you know, someone says down the street. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Well, I I, I, I don't think i go quite, <laughs> quite that far. <laughs> um, I believe there is a prophetic vocation that does entitle you to, to revelation. But I mean, like I say, going back to Isaiah, is, you know, do we really, is most of Isaiah really relevant or useful to us today? I mean, most of it is about the geopolitics of the own world the world he's immersed in. Or, you know, for heaven's sakes, read Ecclesiastes. Do we really believe that everything is vanity and there's nothing that awaits us except an eternity in the grave? Joseph Smith said the Song of Solomon wasn't an inspired document. And it's clear that a lot of the rest of the Old Testament... Well, is it was inspired story. by something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, but, you know, going back to the other hand, you know, I'm saying that when I read even the Old Testament, I find many of the Psalms profoundly moving and beautiful, and inspiring. And I find a lot of the, the, the passages of Scripture throughout to be worthy of study and um, and, and and edifying. Mm-hmm. I just think we have to be very selective, and just as with our prophet, not expect over much from that scriptural Not expect too much. So I yeah.
0: overstated the case, but, but can yeah. a prophet get it wrong in Scripture?
1: uh well yeah certainly i mean i think paul you know his position on women he's he's i was just about to ask you that that was what i was going to ask you getting it wrong to the extent that what he's saying is you know largely shaped by cultural presuppositions
0: that women that women should stay silent in the church you're saying yeah yeah
1: that's funny that that's the one you would highlight why that one well because that's the only one that came to mind at the moment (laughs) there may be others as well
0: interesting <clears throat> okay. Um all right, so for you the the Christ lived was resurrected um uh, some type of atonement happened and the New Testament you know is by and large what it purports to be. That's right. Okay. All right. So, why an apostasy? Like again, this speaks to the inefficient god that like you know, there's this whole world, there's Native Americans You know, separate from the Nephites and Lamanites, there's Chinese, there's, you know, just massive humanity. And then there's this tiny tribe in like the Middle East and they get God's word and everybody else is left off. And and then they do Judaism, but they get captive and scattered. And then, you know, and then it kind of, there's enough there that when Christ comes out of that, he teaches his doctrine and a few people get it and like it, it it lasts for 30 60 years or whatever and then it falls into apostasy and then we go another 2000 uh where everybody's just not guided by the one true prophet church and then the restoration happens again in the LDS context and now we're up to like 15 12 1500 million members on record but maybe only 4 or 5 million actually go to church and we have a, a world of 6 or 8 billion people and it's just so narrow god's yeah. quote truth is is you know pr- the, the the number of his children are privileged to actually benefit from and and you know Christianity is part of that narrow strain
1: yeah how
0: do you how do you
1: think about that? Well, I think about it largely through the, the the prism again of of my wife Fiona, who was raised a Catholic, and brought to her Mormonism a wonderful set of perspectives and understandings. She was one who first pointed out to me that if you look at the allegory of the woman in the wilderness, in right chapter twelve of Revelation, that. Joseph glossed that in a particular way, right? He says that's about the apostasy, right? And then the woman flees into the wilderness. Well, what I find absolutely remarkable is that when Joseph recorded the very, very first revelation that mentions the church that he's going to restore, at first he talks about the formation of a church in the Book of Commandments. But when he recasts that revelation in Doctrine and Covenants section five, he changes the wording and he refers to the coming forth out of the wilderness of the church. So he's obviously influenced by Revelation 12. He's inspired by that language and he's trying to draw a parallel. And what what Revelation 12 says is that the the truth was not taken from the earth, but that it retreated into the wilderness where it was nurtured of the Lord. Now think about the implications of that the church is in the wilderness, it's being nurtured by the Spirit of the Lord throughout this period of so-called darkness and apostasy. This, to my mind, gives us a radically different paradigm for understanding the relationship of Mormonism to the rest of the church and understanding the place of Mormonism in dispensational history. It also gives us an answer to the question, when is Mormonism going to produce a Dante or a Shakespeare or a Beethoven? And the answer is We don't need a Mormon Dante or Shakespeare or Beethoven. We have Dante and Shakespeare and Beethoven. We've got Mm. Handel's Messiah. Why do they have to be authored by Mormons? In other words, Joseph seemed to be suggesting that there is this reservoir of truth and beauty throughout the Christian world and even beyond. And his job was to try to select from these scattered fragments of Mormonism and reconstitute them into an institutional church. But the point is, God has made abundant provision for there to be sources of inspiration, truth, and beauty throughout culture and throughout history. Mormons don't have the monopoly. And in my book, When Souls Had Wings, I engaged in an experiment upon that principle where I investigated the history of one such idea, the pre-existence, and found that indeed there were hundreds and hundreds of manifestations of that beautiful truth in history, philosophy, theology, and art throughout the West, going all the way back to earliest recorded religious history. So that's the first point I would make, is that this so-called narrowness of Mormonism isn't the problem that we might think it is because nobody is claiming, or nobody should be claiming, a Mormon monopoly on the avenues to these truths and what they represent. Second of all, I, I think if I go back to my statement about the most important part of the institutional church being the ordinances of the temple, then you don't need a church of two billion people if your principal role is to serve as custodian of those rituals and make them available and also provide the means whereby their benefits can be extended to the entire human family either vicariously now or throughout the millennium or however you expect that's going to be fulfilled and then finally if you return to what I said earlier about Mormon universalism then you understand that you don't have to be a member of the institutional church in order to secure your salvation. So I think the image is much more apt to think of Mormonism in the way that Christ referred to the the, the leaven in in the bread. All it takes is a little bit of leaven. And Mormonism is here to provide that, as I understand it.
0: Wow. Cause that's so off-putting to me. It, but okay, so your first point was beautiful, but but that's not how we've culturally evolved and I'll just say culturally evolved with the encouragement and seeming endorsement of our top leadership. Cause I, I grew up in Texas and, and I felt like I felt sorry. I felt, I grew up as a Mormon. My parents, um, they, they modeled for me love and compassion for everybody. So I, I don't think I got this from my parents. I went to seminary and I, was trained by a man who revered Bruce R. McConkie and Joseph Fielding Smith. And the Mormonism that I was raised with taught me to feel sorry for everyone around me who wasn't Mormon, to consider them to be less than, to consider our church to be superior in every way. And I didn't didn't even feel like I was raised with um, any type of encouragement to feel reverence or respect. Instead, it was like the Catholics have a cross and they engage in, you know, they believe in transubstantiation. How stupid is that? That, you know, that the Eucharist actually turns into the blood and body of Christ. <laughs> you know, almost a mocking of other religious traditions. If we mentioned any other religious tradition at all, it was to compare how wrong they were and how right we were and I know that I know that that's a natural human thing, but I'm just telling you that if I have any p t s d as as a recovering quote mormon <laughs> it's 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 not from stones or polyandry; it's from having acquired a world view that I was better than everybody and and I, I like it's almost as bad as if I had been an accomplice to a rape or a murder it's like how and that's I think that that leads to people's shattering of faith because they they get raised in the you know Zion corridors some people say or the Mormon corridor or whatever they want to say then they go out in the world and they find these amazingly wonderful thoughtful spiritual Jews or Catholics or Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or atheists and they're like oh my gosh this world is much more beautiful and big than this provincial little Joseph Fielding Smith type Mormonism, you know, fed me. I've been deceived about humanity, not just about the historical texts of, you know, Mormonism. Do you so we come by it honestly, right? Or not? Is that just was I just was I just in this corner of Mormonism that was out of touch with this broader expansive view that you've just communicated?
1: No, I think what you're describing began in the Brigham Young years. If you look at the rhetoric of Brigham Young and everyone else speaking in the tabernacle in the 1850s and 60s, you see a pretty virulent hostility and animosity toward the rest of Christendom. And you can see that that's the after effects of the martyrdom and the expulsion. And then what happens in the 20th century, of course, is the kind of diatribe against the Catholic Church which pervades our culture. I think that we as a church are guilty of an institutional sin in the way that we have uh, trumpeted mormon triumphalism at the expense of the of the virtue and value of other religious traditions and individuals and that's a sin for which you know we need to collectively repent but i would say that there's nothing conducive well not nothing there isn't <laughs> there isn't a lot that's conducive to such a view in Joseph Smith himself. Now, many people point rather unfairly, I think, to the language of the First Vision experience where he talks about, right, the creeds were an abomination and they, you know, but, you know, give me a break. This is He's, he's writing in a 19th century vernacular in which that kind of language is absolutely right de rigueur. What do you mean? Wait, I
0: translate because it is offensive I, to me. The DNC section one is offensive to me. It
1: just... But 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 I know people who don't see we, it that way. So how can well, I not see it that way? Because you can't find any religious language in the early nineteenth century that isn't exclusivist in that way, that isn't triumphalist. Right? The Baptists hate the Catholic Catholic I mean, for heaven's sakes, right? Catholics are the great and abominable church of the devil to everybody. I mean that, <laughs> that that's that's not unique to the Book of Mormon. Right? They couldn't hold office in half the states before the Civil War. And, the, and, the, and the every, I mean, just, you know, just read any of the pamphlet wars going on in the early 19th century, and the rhetoric is just absolutely beyond the pale. So Joseph Smith is simply employing a vernacular, as I said, that is absolutely typical of religious culture in the early 19th century. Unfortunately, it ends up being canonized in scriptures that we still read and disseminate today. And that's part of the reason for this triumphalist rhetoric that has been very damaging. But I think my sense is things began to change under President Hinckley, not just because he was much more media savvy and and, and conscious, but because from the pulpit he actually said on occasion that language of us being the only true church can be misunderstood, it can be hurtful, it can be harmful. And so I think he tried to encourage a retreat from that kind of language and that kind of attitude. But I think it's it's we've been very slow to catch on to that, and so how do you view so okay, so
0: oh, there's two things I want to say: the first is that I'm hearing you say that that the l d s church is is not like the pinnacle or the best or the exclusive you know organization that that is is what God intends, and clearly this is true, what God intends all his children to either become or suffer. It sounds like you're saying God's got this big plan. It's kind of like Joseph B. Worthen's talk about the orchestra. God's got this big plan and it's got tubas and bassoons and, and, and percussion. Mormonism
1: is but one player in the symphony. Well, they're one player. They're the player that he designated to whom he actually bestowed what I believe are very real keys of authority and responsibility. I believe also that the fullest dispensation of truth was made available through Joseph Smith. There isn't a single other Christian denomination on the planet, for example, that espouses belief in the eternal identity of the human soul. That, to my mind, is a critical, really important component of the whole gospel picture. That's available through the restored gospel that we call Mormonism, an understanding of human potential and the capacity that we have to become fully like our our Father in every way. That's unique to us. There are you know there are, there are, There's an array of gospel teachings that I think are... It, it's not that we have to know all of these things in order to become God-like people, but I think the more fullness of the gospel we are able to imbibe and have access to then the greater will be our ability to make progress in, you know, across the the whole array of areas where we need to progress toward a godlike nature. So, no, I think there is a qualitative distinction, but what I'm saying is the fact that we have a particular mandate and a particular responsibility as custodians of the priesthood and the temple ordinances doesn't mean that there aren't other important players in this cosmic drama as well well and much and much that we can learn
0: okay okay so um i'm just really trying to make this work so i'm just gonna um i'm gonna i'm gonna say that uh so so yes the percussion you know provides the tempo and the beat and the rhythm that everyone else you know sort of integrates with and 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 bases their you know their other performances upon so it's unique and it's different and it's special and it's critical and you couldn't have yeah you know anything you know even jazz has percussion um so so yes unique and different and special and sanctioned and approved and critical but you know the other pieces are also are critical, and maybe even the other pieces have their own sanctioned authority in God's mind and planning, and even crucial crucial parts to the overall plan and destiny of, of, of humanity. Can you grant that too? I don't see why not. I have to. If I can't do that, then I, I can't do it. Yeah, you know, I don't mean to be narcissistic, but that's just important for me. I, see, see, I think, I think nobody's lesser than is what I'm saying.
1: Right, right. And I, I think you know the very designation Mormonism. I mean, I, I understand to a great degree why the brethren don't like the use of that of that term. You know, I use it because it has a certain valence and cultural history that LDS doesn't. But the the, the danger is to assume that Mormonism has an eternal status. And it doesn't. Mormonism is the particular incarnation of the Church of Jesus Christ at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. Everybody will eventually have to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is the Christ. Right, right. But okay. LDS Church.
0: LDS Church but, then.
1: But everybody, everybody doesn't have to be a Mormon and everybody doesn't have to be LDS. Right. But, but right now, that Church offers a pretty effective vehicle to get to know Christ and 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 comply with his ordinances
0: right and so substitute what I said about Mormonism to the LDS church as an institution and all I'm trying to say is I have to find a way to piece together a theology if I'm going to keep believing that doesn't that that looks with respect and love to other beliefs and non-beliefs that doesn't place us in any way higher than them but instead says yes uh, you know, we stand up and say we have an important role to play in the plan of salvation, an essential role. But but we also realize with humility that there are other essential roles, and somehow it aggregates into something very universalistic um, and beautiful that is respecting of all traditions and even inclusive of them, not denigrating and relegating. Does that make well, sense?
1: Yeah, that's not just your opinion. That's what the Lord was saying in 1831 when he said to Joseph, there are other holy men that I recognize that are engaged in my work that you don't know anything about.
0: Mm. And you're saying you can read, there's a reading of Doctrine and Covenants section one um, and of Joseph's vision that, that, can, that can still hold that respect and reverence for others.
1: I, I, absolutely. If you make allowance for the historical context and the, you know, cultural conditioning out of which that language arose. Hmm. And that's why, you know, Joseph is so self-conscious about the inadequacy of his verbal presentation of these revelations. It's not like we have to we have to be unfaithful to, to, to Joseph for the principle of revelation to interpret that more generously. Joseph gives you that Grant you that allowance when he says, "Right, I'm struggling. This is a broken, shattered language. I'm trying to do the best I can." But his lifelong project was to revise and revise and and, and try to write more closely approximate what the Lord intended there. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and I just have to say that that for whatever
0: weaknesses you want to ascribe to Joseph Smith, he was it, he. You you get this sense that he was expansive, inclusive. <laughs> loving and respecting of other traditions and people you know the whole invite the minister of another religion to come preach in the tabernacle kind of thing
1: right yeah abso- absolutely he's asked in washington in 1840 in a public address he gives you know do you have to be mormon to be saved and he says no yeah so that, that's right yeah he... go ahead
0: and the final the final point that i'll make before before maybe we have a natural break is that um you seem to have an ev- almost evolutionary gospel view it, it starts with this intelligences and I, i'm not saying you this is your interpretation of joseph's um you know theology but it's almost like you're taking the long view that like we've got millennia we've got eternities plural to have this all work out and you know god's still figuring it out uh the church is still figuring it out Mankind is just one you know this mortal existence that we're currently involved in is just you know one twinkling of an eye in the eternities. And so yeah, prophets are going to screw up. God's screwing up, the church is screwing up, we're screwing up. and and the way that you make sense of it all is to take an eternal view and not not ever expect these these climactic moments of perfection or of wholeness. But instead, we're just grace by grace, inching along, and someday it's all going to make sense and piece together. But but it, but it's going to take a while, eternities, to make that happen. Is that
1: what informs your theology? Well, yeah, to some extent. I don't know that God's making mistakes along the way. I think He's already got the system down. But let me let me tell you what I think is is a paradigm that 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 works for me, and that also I think explains. Joseph Smith's intellectual universe. In in 1785, you know, the greatest astronomer of the day is William Herschel, and he publishes a paper with with the Royal Academy called The Construction of the Heavens. Now, Herschel has built the largest telescopes in history of unprecedented power, and suddenly he's seen things that no human being has ever seen before. Not only does he discover a new planet, but he discovers new processes underway, and he, he presents this paper, and it, it, it creates one of the most radical reassessments of the nature of the heavens since, you know, the Copernican Revolution. What he sees are star systems in collision. He sees vacuums in the midst of deep space. He sees all kinds of phenomena that describe flux and chaos and violent contestation and, and asymmetry. And he presents this paper and suddenly this, this vision that we had previously had of a kind of stable, right, static, orderly, pristine system is just shattered, it's demolished. And what we get is a universe that is now in flux and continual process of change and evolution. And that sense pervades every area of human understanding, from, from science, to, to, to culture, to politics, to economics, to religion. And Joseph Smith is the one, I think, who most fully embraces that as the fundamental nature of this universe. So yes, absolutely, it's all about dynamic change, evolution, progress into an unforeseeable future. And and again, that's I think what gives Mormonism its dynamism and its excitement and its appeal to me as an intellectual system.
0: And it seems like that's the only way to look at all the mistakes and the inaccuracies and the and the and the bad things and the problems in in Mormonism, and still have any desire to well, want to sure, stick sure, with whole, it.
1: Yeah, that whole process is seen in micro, microcosm in the history of the church. You know, we we think I think too often in Mormon culture of the restoration as a fait accompli. And it's not. I remember President Kimball once said, look, we're not anywhere near the end. We don't have the keys of the resurrection yet. What other keys, what other truths, what other things are yet to be revealed? This is an ongoing process. And I think we we just need to be more generous with each other's fallibilities and foibles. And, you know, that's, that's... Another thing that I, I love about Joseph Smith and that famous letter that he wrote who was it was it to W W Phelps that he wrote I think his yeah. letter of reconciliation where he you know he talks about it's my nature to to give and to forgive and to bear with long suffering with the weakness and, and foibles of others I mean what a magnificent g- vision of generosity he himself embodied um, incapable of holding grudges incapable of holding people to too high a standard and yet that's what we we do every day. You know, I, I served as a bishop for a time in a local congregation, and if there's one thing I came to learn immediately, it was, boy, if the prophets are as fallible as bishops like me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're in, you know, then it's a very different picture than the one I thought was out there. And, uh, and I, I think an important lesson I learned was that God had effectively said, look, you're the bishop, I'm giving you keys, and I'm delegating to you the responsibility to make decisions. And even if they're wrong, you're making them under the umbrella of this calling that I have given you. And you just do the best you can. And I think prophets function in the same way. We can't be assured that every single thing that comes from the mouth of a prophet is going to be inspired. right? But they're charged with right, doing the best they can under the ages of of his authority but he's delegated that to them and and yet
0: when when we err as struggling intellectual mormons to hang on i think it's because we've been set up to expect that the gospel makes sense that the history is consistent that that you know that you know adam was baptizing people that, that, that this is all like it's never changed that that the church has John, never
1: changed. Go ahead. We have. We have been set up. The manuals distributed throughout the CES and the and the, and the Sunday school program are deplorable. <laughs> they they you know they are full of of errors. They are full of misinformation. I don't think that there is a deliberate campaign of disinformation that is going on. I think that. The, the best scholarship taking place in the church, in the church history department, hasn't filtered down to the level of the curriculum. And every day that it doesn't, the church is going to lose more Mormons. And the problem is not information, the problem is betrayal. Nobody really leaves the church because there isn't enough information available to answer a question, and that's one thing that I think the church hasn't gotten yet. People leave the church because by the time the question arises, it's too late. If you're 45 years old and you learn for the very first time that Joseph translated the Book of Mormon looking at a peepstone, you have every right in the world to feel betrayed. Why wasn't I taught the truth in seminary or in Sunday school? Yeah, and and I haven't heard a good answer to that, and there really isn't any excuse for the church not to be moving faster, to revise and update and make more truthful and 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 full, those manuals that convey our history to our our, our children, our adults alike.
0: Yeah, I mean even even today, like I interviewed Richard Bushman like back in two thousand seven, and he said that it's ridiculous that the way we portray. The Book of Mormon translation process, visually, it's just dishonest. And yet, here we are in 2011,
1: and there's no change. You know? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I think a lot of this just has to do with bureaucratic inefficiencies. Um, you know, the history department isn't in charge of producing the church history manuals. And they should be right, and right. they should be unfettered and allowed to do that, but like I say, I don't think there's any ill intent i don't think there are any scheming manipulators trying to conceal our history as is often presented as the right. case by right. that's not it it's just it's inefficient and you know and and most of the people you know running this church they're not historians that isn't a calling or vacation i I, I think that you know if you were to ask many in leadership positions they wouldn't have the foggiest idea of how the book of mormon was actually translated when was when were the seer stones employed and what about the hat and those are those are historians those are questions that only historians have concerned themselves with and yet it's it's the it's the narrative
0: upon which we build our faith you don't it is what you do you know faith isn't just like you get some warm feeling somebody tells you a story and then you decide whether or not you want to believe in that story yeah, and so if you built your beliefs upon a story that's inaccurate, then of course your beliefs are going to evaporate, right? Yeah, that's right.
1: And I think another another influence, another factor in this whole problem is if you go back to the first period in Utah when church history is being created, you know, for the first 150 years, church history was only written by apologists or detractors. And if you think of the role of people like Joseph Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, Joseph F. Smith in church history, I mean, Joseph F. Smith, right, had memories until the day he died of the bodies of his father and uncle laid out in Nauvoo. Mm -hmm. His son is president of the church all the way into the 1970s. I mean, suddenly history collapses into these two generations. And you can understand, given that history, given the personal involvement of of Joseph Fielding Smith and his father, and given the siege mentality that prevailed in Utah, it's understandable that they would have been extremely guarded and selective in the history that they told and wrote. And unfortunately, the church has just been painfully slow to revise what in many cases were these kind of canonical historical productions coming out of that whole atmosphere.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're we're about to launch into this, but it it feels like, man, maybe that was necessary, but man, what a cost! The Joseph F. Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce McConkie, kind of Woodkey Packer siege mentality, what a cost that has made in in twenty first century Mormonism.
1: Yeah, There's a heavy cost.
0: price that we're paying, for and that. we'll
1: continue to pay until until more changes are made.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Stories. Music today was provided by the Saber Rattlers. Check them out at saber-rattlers.com. The Mormon Stories logo was generously donated by studiocase.com. Thanks for listening.
2: Come, come, ye saints, no toil nor labor fear, but with joy, wend your way. to you, this journey may appear, grace shall be as your day.